We are in Romans 14 again, finishing up Romans 14. This is the third week that we're here talking about another aspect of the same uh, conversation that we've been having. Romans 14 is a famous uh, text that many of us are familiar with about uh, bearing with and welcoming the weak, not quarreling over opinions, not judging one another. And you might say, Robert, we've been talking about it for two weeks, I get it, so why are you talking about it again? And uh, the, the short answer is because Paul spent so much time talking about it. In other words, God spent so much time talking about it because they, God thinks it's important that, that this issue in the life of the church, that we should be a place of joy and not judgment, that we should be a place of welcome and not looking down on one another for the things that we may hold slightly differently from one another on some of these disputable issues that today we're going to go take in and, and bring in one more piece to it that, that Paul adds to it uh, in terms of uh, how we treat one another, but also going to put it in the context, the greater context of the kingdom of God, which is what Paul does. So I'm going to just start in verse 13 today. We're going to do 13 to 23, keeping verses 1 to 12, hopefully in mind. Paul says, therefore, concluding, coming out of the things he's been saying, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Stop it. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard of as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for the mutual upbuilding or edification. Do not for the sake of food or drink or any other disputable thing destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that's going to cause your brother or your sister to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blesses the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself because of the things that he approves. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Because for whatever does not proceed from faith, then is sin. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people. Your people. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to serve you. We want to walk with you. We want to please you. We want to do what is right. And so, may you take your Word this morning. And not only put information in our heads, but write it upon our hearts in truth and power that we may live and become the kind of church you describe, the people you describe here. That we may be a people of joy and peace together. 
For we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. In chapter 15, the, the next chapter that we're going to get to here soon, Paul tells the church in Rome that he's writing to, he tells them that he wants to come to Rome, that his plan is to, is to come visit them, to spend some time with them. And he says he wants, when he gets here, he wants to preach the gospel to them. He wants to have some fellowship with them. And ultimately, he wants them to help him, uh, send him on his way to Spain. He wants to pass there on his way to do ministry where Christ has not been preached before. But in Acts chapter 28, when we read about how things actually unfold, the the history there, in Acts 28, when Paul finally makes it to Rome, he's a prisoner in chains. He's under house arrest. He's awaiting trial. In Acts 28, it says this, in verse 30 and 31, it says that he lived there for two whole years at his own expense, You're going to be under house arrest. You're going to pay for your own lodgings. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's interesting to me because the topic is not as clear and strong as it was in in the Gospels that part of, if you see Paul's message, he has two pieces to it. And at the front end of it is he's preaching the kingdom of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, Kurios. What they wouldn't say is Caesar. Kaiser is Kurios. But Jesus is Kurios. He is emperor. He is king. And they're preaching the kingdom of God. Right? That's part of the message. It's part of the gospel. It should be part and parcel of the way that we understand the things of Christ and all else is in that context. That's why in verse 17, as we read a moment ago, is in the middle of this conversation, he says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, right? And he puts it in this greater context of the kingdom of God. And you guys, he says it's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not whether you drink wine or don't drink wine, or you do eat meat or you don't eat meat, or you do consider certain days more special than others. He says it's not about that kind of thing. What is it about? He says it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what this is all about, my friends. He says that's what living in this community called into this kingdom, he says, is, is all about. It's in this kingdom, the kingdom of God, that you and I live. If you have put your faith in Christ and trusted in Him as the King... If you've bowed the knee to him as God's king, the one that he sent to save us and then to, in a sense, rule over us as our king, then you have entered into his kingdom. You have come under the kingdom, wherever his lordship is, is his kingdom. And if you come under his lordship, his salvation, then you have entered into his kingdom, his reign and his rule. Paul tells us that elsewhere, Colossians 1.13. It says that we, he has transferred us into the kingdom. We were delivered from the domain of darkness. You had been under the reign of a tyrant, of sin, death, and the devil. And he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness, he says, into the kingdom of his dear son, our king. And we've transferred kingdoms. And so we repent and we believe and enter into the kingdom of God. And so he defines, 
It's a place that is not defined. This kingdom that Christ reigns over, that we have entered into under his lordship, he says, is not the kind of place that is defined by don't eat this, but eat that. Don't drink this, but drink that. Right? And don't wear this, but wear that. Don't, don't you know, these do's and don'ts. Have your hair this long, but not that long. Right? You know, you can play this game, but not that game. Right? And it's, he says it's not a place like that. The atmosphere of the kingdom, he says in verse 17, the atmosphere of the kingdom isn't like this. He says it's joy and it's peace in the Holy Spirit. Where we all stand righteous. Where we all stand equally righteous. However you're wearing your hair or whatever you're drinking or not drinking or eating. Where we all stand righteous. The same righteous with the righteousness of Christ. Accepted and welcomed. And he says, and that's what, the, that's what the atmosphere of the kingdom is, and the atmosphere then of the church. You know, the church is not the kingdom, but the church is an outpost of the kingdom. Right? It's a little sliver of the reign of Christ, where those who have come under his lordship gather together under his word, under the, the rule of his word and his spirit, and we know him and love him and walk with him and serve him. And this little outpost of the kingdom where we all stand righteous in joy and peace. And that's why he starts in verse 13 saying, stop judging one another. Don't, don't do that anymore. It had been happening, apparently, in the church in Rome, and he's writing about these issues. In the early church, there were a bunch of these issues. It was Jews and Gentiles had come together and these culture clashes, and there were some Jews who were really raised under, you know, this day's important and that day's important, and you can only eat kosher food, and, you know, you can't eat unclean things. And, you know, the Gentiles who come in, and their understanding the gospel says everything is clean. Eat what you want. And there's some, some tension, but, you know, for us, we don't have those exact same tensions, but we have other tensions. We have other issues, particularly in the last few years. Now, what does it mean to stumble? Because in verse 13, when he says, you know, don't judge one another any longer, stop that. But rather, he says, this is what you ought to be doing. You ought to never be putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in front of your brothers and sisters. You should be loving them. And so this, this stumbling block, this hindrance, what does it mean to cause your brothers? Don't cause your brothers and sisters to stumble. So what does that mean? What, what is it telling us not to do? There's a lot of confusion in, about this. I think clear from the passage, he's telling us it means don't cause someone to violate their own conscience. Because to violate your own conscience is to sin. Right? And he's going to say that here in a minute, in verse 14. He says he's persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. He's saying you can eat whatever you want, and you can drink whatever you want. Right? He says, I'm convinced of it. And he says, in, in the Lord, like from the Lord's own life, from the Lord's own teaching, from the Lord's own revelation, right? I'm convinced that this is absolutely true. But if a person is convinced in their own mind that eating meat is wrong, then they shouldn't eat meat. Because your conviction is your conscience is what you believe wherever you stand is you believe God doesn't want you to, you believe that it's not the right thing to do, then you shouldn't do it or you're doing what you think is wrong. In other words, right, you, 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 you sin because you deliberately do what you think is wrong. 
right? He says, if, you, if, if you're convinced in your own mind, right, that's verse 14, anyone who thinks it's unclean, for him it is unclean. Because he thinks it's unclean. Like, so you shouldn't violate your own conscience. Now, he, I think, ultimately would like all of us to come to the understanding, a biblical understanding on these things. But we live in a, in a church where there are varying levels of, we all come from different places. Some of us grew up in churches where certain things were prohibited. We're, at, we're of the devil and we're horrible, right? And you can't ever, you know, like they're the bad ones, right? You know, that church down the street because they have a square dance, right? <laughs> but this is the kind of thing that goes on and it's a real thing. And people who grow up in that may have scruples, for lack of a better word, that, that they, they don't get past, that they're not fully convinced or that niggles on them, and so they don't feel free. And if they don't feel free, then they're not. To vi- they're not fr- we're not free to violate. If we're convicted or convinced, we're not free to violate what we're convicted about if we think it's what God wants. So to stumble, to cause someone to stumble means to cause them to violate their conscience. Paul is persuaded nothing is unclean. But it's wrong to eat meat. If you think it's wrong to eat meat and you eat meat anyway, he says that's wrong. Because for you it is unclean if it's your conscience, your conviction. And so we should never, he says, force. Come on. Right? For... Here, give me an example that I've not, not done here. A lot of churches use actual wine in communion. I grew up in the Episcopal Church and from a young age got a taste of wine every Sunday. Uh, or that was a few that we went. <clears throat> Some Sundays. Um, and that's where in the Catholic Church, in the Episcopal Church, and a lot of churches around the world, I mean, it's just standard practice. There was bread and wine, and they used bread and wine. I, I came to Christ in, uh, in an early PCA church, and the way they did it was they had the, the trays of communion and the middle ones were wine and the outer ones were grape juice. And so you had your choice in terms of which way you would go and partake. But we should never, in one sense, where there are people, that's why I think you have to give that option because there may be those who are convicted about drinking alcohol. And if all we did was serve alcohol in communion, there is this pressure to f- force you or shame you or the peer pressure, you know, to partake of something you don't feel comfortable with or be excluded from communion in your own church, right? And so we don't want to force or shame or peer pressure people into doing things that they're not free to do. So in verse 23, he reiterates that if someone doubts Right? You doubt that it's okay to do that. Then he's condemned if he does it. Because you're not free. You're not there. The eating is not of faith. Because your faith, you, you need to live in accordance with your faith. With the, and the faith ultimately should be the content of the scripture. But we need to live in accordance. It must come from a heart of faith that is a heart to please God. A heart to honor God. And we should never act in a way that we think is dishonoring or displeasing to God. So you must follow your own conscience. Each should be convinced in verse 5, going back to where he's been talking about this. This is why in verse 5 he says, each should be convinced in your own mind. And you should live faithfully to God 
and according with the truth as you understand it, biblically. So let me briefly clarify then, to cause someone to stumble, and this has often been the debate then, sometimes this is used to say then we, we all have to live to the lowest common denominator. Right? Some have used this passage to say that if there's somebody around who feels weak on something, doesn't feel free on something, that nobody is free on that. Right? And that that's what the text is teaching. To love them means that nobody should exercise their freedom. And I don't think that's what it's saying. I think when it says to cause not to stumble doesn't mean to cause someone who disagrees with you to be offended or to become judgmental, which is often usually the case. Right? See, the, the issue is this. Why? Because that person is not in danger of violating their conscience. Right? You don't want to put them in a context where you might cause them to violate their conscience, which for them is sin. Jesus says it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to sin. Right? So to cause to stumble is to cause them to sin, to violate their conscience. But a lot of times in the life of the church, what people do is they're not tempted to violate their conscience. They're just judgmental about it which is exactly what the text forbids, right? If you don't remember, you who are weak, don't pass judgment on the strong. You who are strong, right, should bear with and not look down on or despise the weak, right? That's what he's told us not to do, right? So he's not saying, hey, you guys, go ahead and, you know, encourage this sin among your brothers of their offense and judgment of you, you know, and and live to it. So what I'm saying is that... that that person is actually doing what the passage condemns, judging the one who eats or drinks. The, the issue is causing people to stumble, to force, to shame, or to lead someone to violate their conscience, which is why we need to be careful when and how we exercise our liberty, which is our liberty. And so he says the rule is this, that we need to walk in love. That's what verse 15 tells us. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, then you're no longer walking in love by what you eat. So do not destroy the one for whom Christ died because of what you want to eat or because of what you want to drink. And the word there is very strong, destroy. That's not just that they're offended and judgmental of you. It's something much more. It's to lead them into sin. So if the brother is grieved, it says, and the word there, grieved, means to grieve. It's sorrow, it's distress, It means that the person is conflicted, that they are confused. It means that they're tempted and upset, like that it has has that kind of effect on them to challenge their faith and to leave them confused in some way. If they're grieved, if they're distressed, conflicted, confused, tempted, then you're not walking in love. Don't, in whatever context, put your brother or sister in that kind of a situation. The kingdom of God is a kingdom, he says, of love. He's already made this point in chapter 14 and chapter 13 and 12. It welcomes both the weak and the strong. They're both welcome, right? So the law of Christ's kingdom, John 13, 34, the law of the kingdom is this, love one another just as I have loved you. Love one another just as I have loved you, so love one one another, so you walk in love and you figure out how your freedom, you know, interacts with other people's scruples and their convictions. 
and how to walk together in love without causing the brother to stumble or to be tempted or to be hurt by you. God is saying this. He prioritizes relationships above rights. Isn't that what he's saying? Yes, you're free in this area. Yes, all things are clean. But out of love, don't put a stumbling block in front of your brothers and sisters. Don't don't grieve them. Figure out how to do that in a way that respects those differences and love one another well. We prioritize rights over relationships. I wish we would have remembered this the last three years. We prioritize, I'm sorry, relationships over rights. Right? That's what he's saying. You, you, there are times that you might sacrifice your right out of love for your brothers and sisters. There's been so much arguing about rights <laughs> and so much where I felt like a lack of love toward one another over things that have been very disputable over the last few years. And God is saying that the church needs to learn to be willing to sacrifice our rights out of love and relationship, the priority of relationship. I learned it early in my marriage. Somebody told me early in my marriage, I think it saved my marriage. There are things more important than winning and being right. Like your marriage. Like your spouse. Like the relationship. Sometimes if you win, the relationship loses. <laughs> if you want the relationship to win, then sometimes you need to lose. It's healthy. Die to yourself. Right? Sacrifice your rights, your privileges, your whatever, for the sake of the relationship, for love, for peace, for joy in the kingdom and in the marriage. Die to yourself is part of what it means to follow Jesus. You take up your cross and you deny yourself daily to follow him. John Stott says, welcome, the welcome that we give to genuine believers. He keeps saying in here, welcome one another, welcome the weak, and we're all... God welcomes us, welcome each other. And he says this welcome is a welcome into one's fellowship and into one's heart. It implies a warmth and a kindness of genuine love. It's just not like, yeah, you can have a seat over here. You're welcome. Right? No, wel- welcome is come on in to the family and we will treat you like family and with love, like you belong and you will be respected welcomed into the kingdom, is welcomed into our hearts. And so he says in verse 15, so by what you eat in exercising your right, don't destroy the one for whom Christ died. It's a very strong word, this destroy, which again goes back to it's not just that they're offended or they disagree with you and so they're being judgmental on you, but he's saying that by what you eat, you destroy them. And the word means at times to kill or destroy in, in, a, in a very thorough way. And so the idea, it's a strong word. It's in some ways, I think, hyperbole. It's a kingdom in which we all stand in the righteousness of Christ. But he is saying the opposite of destroy in this context. If you look at verse 19 and elsewhere, there's two or three places where he says, so let us pursue, if we're not going to destroy each other that way, let's pursue what then? Peace and mutual upbuilding. So the destroy there is don't tear them down. We want to build them up. Right? We don't want to break the peace. We want to keep the peace. And that peace is the larger peace of the church, but the peace between us. 
the peace between us. Don't destroy the relationship because of what you approve, because of what you think is your right, or it may actually be your right. We love. And the opposite then of destroy is to keep the peace, to build up, to edify. Don't tear down. Don't do spiritual harm. Don't destroy and damage relationships because we don't respect other people's consciences and beliefs and convictions. We don't need, he's saying we don't need to agree on secondary matters. It's okay if you think you're right and you think they're wrong. We can still live together in peace, and you don't have to win that argument. That's what he's saying. You don't have to win that argument. We don't need to agree on secondary matters, things that are not essential in order to share a peaceful, loving unity, as he says. And so the practical way that we walk in love, verse 13, where it starts again, as he says, is to not cause your brother or your sister to stumble, not to put a stumbling block in front of the people that we love. And so in verse 20, he says, he says, do not destroy the work of God. And we wonder what the work is. Part of that is the peace of the church. He's building his church. But, but more particular is, is people. He's talking about other Christians. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Right? You're his workmanship. And he says, don't destroy. And I know that these two go together because in Verse 20, he says, don't destroy the work of God. But in verse 15, he says, don't destroy the person for whom Christ died, who is the work of God. By stubbornly demanding your rights, rather than lovingly foregoing and making accommodation for people you love. The Lord's command is to walk in love, and it means to understand where other people are coming from, to welcome them, to respect them, to never pressure them, to never look down on them, to embrace them and love them as fully, to understand that they have serious convictions themselves. For whatever reason, wherever they come from, a conscience trained in another context that, that still has a hold on them. So in verse 21, there are circumstances, right? It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And I don't think that it means that if there's somebody in the church that thinks eating meat is wrong, then I can never eat meat. You know, that, that we, we can eat meat, but you're just saying there are circumstances where you might be in a certain context where you might want to choose not to. I may feel free to drink wine, beer. But if, if I did, I might want to do that and be careful of the context in which I do that. To be aware of how other people think and feel and to make sure that in my freedom, I'm not causing damage to someone else. But it doesn't mean we don't have an opportunity to exercise our freedom. It means that we need to do it wisely, lovingly, with our eyes wide open, cherishing relationship above our rights. There are circumstances that may cause harm where people will feel pressured. They will be confused. They might be hurt. We need to be careful. John Stott says, God has accepted him. This principle is better even than the golden rule. The golden rule says it's safe to treat others as you would like them to treat us. But this rule is this. It's safer still. Treat them as God does. He welcomes them and he respects them. 
with loving, gracious patience. And then in verse 22, he says, keep, you know, the, the faith that you have about these things, things that you have about these things, eating and drinking and the list of things. Keep them between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself because of the things he approved. So again, this whole thing about keep what the, these things between yourself and God means that I should never say out loud what I think about these things. And I don't think that that's what it means either. <laughs> right? It doesn't mean that we can't have healthy debate on these issues and conversations or to be free, you know, the things that we believe. It's just, it is being careful about them, though. To keep it between you and God means it is your personal, keeping it between you and God means it's your personal conviction and you live to, you live to the Lord and you die to the Lord and he's your Lord and master. You'll answer to him and not to anybody else. And there's a sense in which you keep this thing between you and him. You don't have to convince anybody else. You don't have to force anyone else. In other words, I think it means that we should not flaunt our opinions. We don't have to win everyone to our opinion. I think it means, to some extent, what he's saying here is don't quarrel. You know, if you feel strongly about that way and they feel strongly that way, you know what? Just, you live to God on this issue and you don't have to debate them on it. It's okay. There's room for both of you. And that's why in verse 22, he says, there's the faith that you have, keep it, because blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In other words, that those of us who approve some of those things and feel free in those things will be blessed with a good conscience. We keep a clean conscience when we respect others who don't agree with us by not causing contention and by not causing them to stumble. That's how we keep our conscience clean. It's not about whether we eat or not. We're free. But our clean conscience comes from what do we do with that freedom and how we treat and respect people, keep the church from contention and our brothers and sisters from stumbling. So let me leave this and put it back then. I wanted to end, I think, as, I, as, as I've done all of this in Romans chapter 14, it, it, it startles me in a way that verse 17 is in the middle of it, right? And that verse 17 arises in this kind. Many of us would know this verse. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's of, it's of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. I mean, I could quote that verse. You know, many of you would recognize that verse, but would you recognize the context, like where that verse comes up? And I find it fascinating that statement's not somewhere on some treatise on the, on the kingdom and all kind of other, you know, but it's here in the middle of this conversation, this long conversation that Paul brings up where his concern is that the church be a place of unity and peace and, and his concern that we're not quarreling about secondary and non-essential matters and how that brings, you know, the kind of tenor both to the life of the church but to something for our witness he brings it here. Here, I want to end then to put all of this in the context of the kingdom of God. Because it, the kingdom here in verse 17 is tucked right in the middle of this. And I rather, I would, I would actually turn it around and say all these issues that we're talking about, which are relatively minor in the, in the great scheme of things, all of these issues and all of us, really, we're actually tucked in the middle of the kingdom of God. Right? And that's what he brings here is he brings us up like a mountain peak above all these things and to say all of these things, my friend, that take place in, in this, the midst of the kingdom where Christ is reigning over us as king. And the king, kingdom is already 
come in a sense, the kingdom of righteousness, joy, and peace that we, I can't wait in so many ways, like Paul, in some ways I'm, I'm anxious to depart and to be with Christ, and yet I know that to stay is a, is a labor, that there is this kingdom, and he says there's a foretaste of it that you and I should be pursuing in the life of the church as we live together. All of this is tucked under the kingdom, the context of Jesus' lordship over all of us, which is what he's been saying back in verse 8. He said, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. You belong. Whether we live or die, we belong to the king. It's all in, the, in this context. And so there's a very real sense that the nature of God's kingdom, what the kingdom of God is like, governs this whole conversation. Well, it governs every conversation. The kingdom, what the kingdom of God is like should govern how we think about these things. Not, it's not about eating and drinking. In other words, we as Christians create problems when we make the Christian life about the wrong things. How often do we do that? How often do we bicker? We do it in marriage too. I'm always amazed that the things that we end up fighting about are not the big things. It's stupid things. It's little things. Right? It's those things that you just you find that end up and you're like, how do we get here? Why, why are we even arguing about whether the car was, you know, why are we arguing about the way that, you know, how, does, how do you even get there? So many, you know, when there are the big, we live in the, in the context of the big core, essential, theological, moral, and biblical truth of the kingdom of God and of Christ as king and all that he has done. And yet we focus so often in the church through the centuries, through the decades, through these last years and undisputable things focusing on that creates quarrels within. And if we don't recognize it, it also creates barriers to those who are outside. We put up barriers to the gospel. Partly because we, we make things an issue that aren't an issue for God in the kingdom. And so out, people outside think, oh, that's an issue. So, But it's not. It's a false barrier. God doesn't care. We care. We not just meat and alcohol, but cards and dancing. The length of one's hair, his hair is long. You know, if somebody visits a church and somebody comments on how long, how the length of their hair. You know, for a boy particularly, as I'm thinking about, you know, or they had a piercing in there, you know, somewhere, you know, or they have a tattoo, or they have a bunch of tattoos, or they're sleeved with tattoos, or, you know, whatever it is, and these are issues. And let me just say, the kingdom of God is not about any of those things. They can know and love Jesus as much or more than you do. And when we make it about such things, we create barriers to keep people out. When God says, welcome them. Church traditions close. It grieves me. In the last few months, somebody told me, you know, you have a visitor and says, I can't go to your church because I don't have nice enough clothes. Right? And I have people tell me, you know, that you can't worship God without certain clothes because God cares. I'm not sure that he does. I mean, I, you know, at some level now, people are going to come in with holy shorts and <clears throat> there's, some, there's some accommodation to culture and to each other and all of that and to the Lord. But, but in the end, my friends, 
The kingdom of God is not about pews and pulpits and the clothes you're wearing or the length of your hair. Or The gospel is such that it enters us into the kingdom of Christ where we are righteous with the righteousness of Christ. And we're righteous not because we eat or drink certain things or hairs a certain way or we play these games or don't or we have this on our body or don't. We're righteous not because of anything we do, anything that we have, anything that we've done. And if you think you have, you don't understand the gospel and what it takes to get in to be righteous with the righteousness of Christ alone, through faith alone. kingdom of God is a kingdom of power. It's a kingdom that transforms the life of the inner person where righteousness grows like the rising sun brighter and brighter as we're conformed more and more to the image of Christ. It's a place where we have peace with God. We're here because we've made peace with God and so we enter into worship. I heard you a minute ago, joyfully, freely, because your sins are forgiven, because you're righteous with the righteousness of Christ, and you are accepted and welcomed into His presence. And so there's a joy in the Holy Spirit as we worship together, as we share and fellowship together. That's the kingdom of God. It's a peace with Him and a joy, but it's a peace with each other and a joy in the fellowship and the kingdom that He has created for us. Finding my time is out. But I will say that Paul's drawing a line between religious people and kingdom people. People whose religion is focused on externals and disputable and non-essential things versus kingdom people who are about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit according to the fullness of biblical truth. There are those people who keep outward religious rules. They have a form of godliness but they deny the power thereof to change a heart, to change a life, to bring us in. This is why in Colossians, Paul says on this same topic, do not submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. We don't need to add, there are already some rules in here. There are already things in here that we've got to do to please him and to follow him and to be like him. We don't need to make up any. We don't need to add any. According to human precepts and teaching, these have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body and a closeness of life, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence to the flesh. They are not indicators of true spiritual life. They're not indicators of true change of character in heart. And it's sad that this is the impression the world has of Christ in the kingdom. Prohibitions and rules and laws rather than righteousness, peace, and joy. My friends, we live in a time when things outside are becoming more divisive. The last few years, things inside have gotten more divisive. And I think we need to relearn and to learn some of the things that Paul is teaching here when the world is tribalizing by race and by politics, by sexuality, by gender, by COVID beliefs, by masks and vaccines. And as things get worse and worse, the reality is people actually are getting more and more hopeless. Right? And there's more conflict and there's more division and there's more anger and there's more outrage. What is the hope? Particularly if they look at a church that is marked by the same things. 
through the last number of years, it has felt that way at times. What hope do we have? Right? Jesus came, Mark 1, preaching and proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus and enter the kingdom. And so the question is, what is your relationship with God this morning? See, the world is as it is because it's in rebellion against its creator. It refuses to come under the reign of God. What is your relationship with God? Are you in rebellion? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus and entered into his kingdom of righteousness and acceptance and welcome with God of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ who has done all that is needed. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true and we pray, O King, that you would come and reign over us. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would open your word to us and to help us to see what is essential and non-negotiable and give us the courage to stand on the truth of your word and the reality and the theology and the truth that is here, the courage to stand on it. And yet the grace to be gracious and kind and welcoming and accepting that those who disagree on secondary, non-essential, disputable things. And give us the wisdom to know the difference. And give us the experience as a church of living in your kingdom righteous, peaceful, and joyful by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.